back to another episode of the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jasmine, and today, just in time for recording, Aldi's CMO Mark Richardson is set to leave the German grocery brand after years of helping build its renowned, quirky approach to marketing in an often safe sector. Westpac's Jenny Melkewish is incoming after a career working in the financial institution. During this podcast, you'll hear how Richardson's marketing team have helped Aldi continue to gain market share over the past six years and what we can expect with his successor coming in. You'll also hear a little bit about brand safety on Twitter as the social media network begins to crumble under the ego of Elon Musk. Then a conversation with local WPP president Rose Herzeg and UM Australia CEO Anathea Rise about tackling stereotypes in the Australian media and advertising industry, how things have changed over the course of their careers and some personal experiences too. Really worth a listen that one. Joining me today, it's just me and you, journalist Kalila Welch. Hey, K-Dog, how are you doing? I'm not doing too bad after we've finally got this recording to work today. Yeah, we've uh, established that Kalila is the the tech wizard we all thought that she was. We were fumbling around, uh, me in Melbourne, you out there in Sydney, and we figured out you just had the volume down. (laughs) Easy fix. So um, it's a bit of a scramble from us today as just before, well, about an hour or so before we were due to record, uh, Aldi sent out a press release that it's uh, it's long-term, or oh, I guess you could call it long-term in marketing terms, six-year CMO Mark Richardson is set to leave um, with, as we mentioned at the top there, Jenny Melhuish coming in. Previous discussion on radio and Kyle and Jackio's return to the summit has been thrown out the window. So if you wanted to hear more about that, you might have to wait until the next survey. Um, As we said there, though, Kalila, Mark Richardson, he joined at the end of 2016 from BT Financial Group, where he was senior manager for marketing. Um, Can you start by telling us a little bit about, I guess, the approach that Aldi has been I guess, or come known for in the time before he joined and I guess built on in that time as well. Absolutely. So Richardson himself has attributed kind of, I guess, the beginning of Aldi's very quirky approach to advertising to the Christmas spot with the Surfing Santas, which I believe was launched in 2012 by BMF, um, who's still their creative partner to this day. Um, he also attributes a lot of the brand's ability to really explore its cre- creative side, I guess, to its relationship with BMF and the trust that it's placed in BMF before his time and, you know, since he came on as well. Um, probably the biggest milestone since he came on and shortly after he joined Aldi was the launch of the Good Different platform uh, in 2017, I believe, which launched with that really iconic spot with the woman dancing around an Aldi car park with her trolley, which I can add that I actually did a full analysis on. It was part of my advertising degree. So clearly I was onto something. Um, but yeah, that that spot has obviously flowed through their approach in the past five or six years um, and Good Different is still a platform that exists today, obviously a testament to its strength and its resonance with Aldi consumers. 
it's really interesting that good different proposition that sort of does as you say embody the Aldi approach which have have sort of um always wanted to challenge the notion of what is sometimes perceived as safe advertising in the retail retail sector with the, that duopoly of Coles and Woolies sort of sometimes being seen as being afraid to sort of step outside their their comfort zones um I wrote a longer read a couple of months ago about the Coles and Woolies war, and I, I did intend on including Aldi in it, but it was a, a little bit too tricky because Aldi doesn't really follow the same script as the other two tend to in terms of its marketing output. Um, I guess things like collectibles, collectibles, loyalty cards, which um, I guess it's, it's it's previously, and I you know we're looking at um, this in the last hour or so, and I read uh, I think in 2017 there was a report from the supermarket industry body that said um, Aldi needed to provide its customers a loyalty card in order to catch up with that um, duopoly, as it's kind of previously actually mocked them um, in in its marketing output previously as well. Interestingly. Um, kind of talk about the the sort of script that the, the two follow there. And um, for for some time, it was price that Coles and Woolies were sort of, that was the big battleground, which Aldi has obviously um, has sort of always been its differentiator. Um, and then, so it hasn't really needed to be in that fight. And then recently it's become more sustainable or sustainability, which Aldi actually ended up being the first supermarket to reach 100% renewable power last year in 2021 and now um interestingly as we sort of spoke about last week clearly with the coal spot um they've definitely sort of returned that battleground to to um price a little bit as well um it would be good i guess to for how to hear a bit more about how that um i guess approach has eventuated and you know obviously uh, it's not just the quirky campaigns. They've actually been awarded quite a lot for some of that work under Richardson and that partnership with BMF as well, haven't they? Yeah, so as as you mentioned, Cal, Aldi's always been, I guess, on the front foot when it comes to some of these key battlegrounds like price and sustainability. Um, and with their marketing in terms of success, obviously they've been awarded um, an FE for most effective marketing team of the year, um, which is obviously speaks for itself. And asking around the industry, um, you know, and myself, as I mentioned before, when I was studying advertising and in my time since, everybody is always speaking really highly of Aldi's approach to marketing. Um, it's always listed in uh, various, you know, executives and, and various industry figures, kind of big top advertisers or most ins- inspiring other brands that they're seeing in the marketplace. So it, it's got reputation both um, anecdotally and also they have the awards cabinet to prove themselves as well um i guess another important i guess metric in this um fiercely competitive sector is um revenue and market share um interestingly now we see um woolworth still the market leader in australia with a 37 37 percent market share with coles coming in second place at 28 percent Aldi has around a 10.5 to 11% share, although that has, um, this is as of 2022, um, that has been rapidly growing at it as it was just 4% in 2009. And uh, in 2017, just after Richardson came in and they launched that um, good different proposition, it sat about 8.6% of market share. 
um, Woolies has actually grown marginally in that time. And West Farmers now, Coles, since that demerger a few years ago, was 30.9%. So it's during that time that sort of 2 to 3% has mostly been taken from Coles' share, uh, in particular since um, Coles has in that time sort of moved away from a focus on price, which, as I mentioned, we are seeing a return to. Also, Richardson recently retained Zenith as its uh, media agency after a global a global reshuffling of sorts, um, and it now has around 582 locations in Australia with a long-term target of 600. So the obvious link that um, I guess some have made already would be um, Mark moving to Coles with that vacant uh, CMO role after Lisa Ronson left there a few months ago, although there are a couple of other brands in the sort of FMCG sector that have been um, potentially linked as well. Uh, so let's have a quick look at now. Um, Jenny Melhuish, um she is moving across after 15 years within the Westpac group. Uh, a few roles, brand, uh, sorry, group level, Westpac and St. George. What can we kind of expect from Jenny, I guess, from what we've seen in her marketing output in recent years throughout those brands, Kalila? Yeah, so Jenny herself has said that she has a bit of a penchant for challenger brands, um, which obviously aligns well with Aldi's position in the market and their unique um, approach to advertising. And during her time um, working with Westpac Bank and St. George's Bank, um, obviously to in a, in a category where um, there isn't a lot of distinction sometimes in the advertising um, space, especially, you know, with the um, Royal Commission into banking and, and all the all the problems that have been faced, I guess, all the hardships that have been seen in that industry at the moment. Um, she's produced or, or been involved in producing some really um, kind of well-known and well-regarded campaigns um, for both banks. So um, one of them is the Helping Hand campaign for Westpac, um, which I remember when it came out really distinctively because it was very different. Um, it was set to David Bowie's Heroes and it played out that scene um, with the people, the construction workers on Sydney Harbour Bridge, you know, helping each other. I think somebody falls off or something like that. But it was quite an emotive piece. And then on the other hand, there was um, revitalising the little dragon mascot for um, St George's Bank with the Little Dragon campaigns, which I think ran over a couple of years as well. Yeah, so I guess it seems on paper um, like a good fit as, you know, the points you mentioned there and it's sometimes overly safe or generic category in terms of some of the, the what we see, the marketing output, similarly to, I guess, the the the, the market positioning that Aldi has um, built itself out in over the last few years or decade or so. Um, but anyway, let's move on to the next topic. Coming up is Twitter's fall from grace. So it's been about two weeks or so since uh, Elon Musk became the super admin of Twitter. Um, and in the meantime, he has already alienated quite a few people and I guess um, seems to be enjoying his his new role. Um, there's been many, many job cuts. There's been word of advertisers turning off or turning away. Um 
MIT's reported that Twitter has lost over a million users already. Kalila, what's the sort of um, what's the sort of feeling now? It's, the, 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 uh, give, can you give us a short timeline of events that have happened so far, and I guess obviously risks associated now with brand safety on that platform as well. Yeah, so it's been an absolute ordeal. Um, it was first reported in April that Musk was on the cusp of the purchasing Twitter, which. Um, from what I recall, had been quite a bit of back and forth between Musk and Twitter already, um, with Twitter initially hesitant um, to sell to Musk. And as you mentioned, 28th of October, it all went live. Elon is the new, um, is now helming Twitter, I guess. So about a week before the deal closed, um, I think on the 21st of October, it was reported that Musk had planned to cull um, up to 75% of the platform's workers, which he denied. But uh, when he did come back in, he asked for the entire Twitter board, kind of confirming people's fears, I guess, about the changes that were going to happen, um, which is something, you know, he's been alluding to the entire time that he's been looking at making this purchase and, and looking at taking over Twitter some of the things that he's spoken about a lot include censorship or freedom of speech as such. So he's talked um, at great lengths about the changes he would look to make to um, the moderation of content and uh, disinformation and stuff. I think uh, one thing that he's toyed with is is the idea of having one version of the platform where you can say whatever you want and one version of the platform that um, is moderated uh, and then users can choose which way to go. I think it, it, interestingly we kind of um, saw this week with um, getting a getting a bit more of an idea uh, with what some of those cuts that are coming in locally. I mean it seems mm-hmm. like they've pretty much cut every um, every single division within Twitter in Australia um, I guess aside from the agency sales team which is um, sort of sort of I guess fascinating when you think about the impression that um, some of the media buyers in Australia are sort of quietly and semi-publicly putting out there. Um, spoke to a few at the end of this week, at the start of this week, I should say. Um, you said that they were effectively recommending that brands pause spend on the platform um, while brands were also um, requesting the same. Um, one of them saying that it's not a safe place for brands and that it would be too damaging to be thrown into that environment right now. And then, you know, I also I spoke to another agency um, this morning. They said that, that in particular they've seen a lot of growth recently in digital but not from Twitter, um, particularly from Meta. And, you know, the, the, this particular agency um actually never hears from Twitter at all and they never come up in conversation. So I guess maybe that that says something about the, the approach at the moment that, um, you know, you speak to quite a lot of agencies that say, oh, we actually have very little to do already with Twitter in Australia. Yeah, I mean, for those that have or, or do have any kind of work with Twitter, um, it is a really risky place. You know, some of the, a lot of the job cuts, as you mentioned, they pretty much didn't spare many people at all in Australia, but just looking at some of the posts people have made on LinkedIn talking about their experience or um, announcing their departure, forced departure from the platform, um, we've kind of seen that there's a lot of word that entire the entire curation team has been let go and the you know, entire team's responsible for um, moderating and looking out for disinformation, putting disclaimers on tweets have been all let go as well. Um, and 
you know, his his takeover itself has been welcomed by conservatives in the far right, which um, again makes it a really volatile place and really dangerous for advertisers that want to, you know, align not only with Twitter itself and with Elon Musk itself, which is obviously a very contentious kind of topic at the moment, but also with a lot of the things that are happening within the platform and the dialogues that are kind of unfolding, I guess. It'll be one to watch as um, it sort of obviously seems like Musk is figuring it out as he goes, which is probably not the right approach to do. But he did previously say on your point there that he wanted um, Twitter to be uh, a neutral platform. And then a couple of days ago, just before the um, American midterms actually recommended that um, his followers would vote Republican in that same election. So, yeah, Mm. as you say... um, a little bit of an unsafe environment maybe for some brands at the moment or potentially there are just more safe ones out there. But, yeah, um, certainly I think won't be the last time we'll be talking about Twitter and Elon Musk uh, on this podcast in the near future. But now um, after the break, we have that conversation that I mentioned earlier with Rose Herzeg and Anathea Rise. President of WPP in Australia and New Zealand, Rose Herseg, and UM Australia CEO, Anathea Rise. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so Thank you. much, Callum. Um, so the Australian chapter of the UN Women's Unstereotype Alliance was uh, launched, I guess, with the bold agenda of eliminating stereotyping in Australian advertising and media, um, which does disproportionately affect women of ethnic minorities it would be good um i don't know who wants to start with this by by just telling us a little bit about what specifically i guess on top of that a bit further what the unstereotype alliance of it what was the purpose of its launch locally and i guess who and what make it up here um, i'll jump in there and um it, it we're almost a year old and the Unstereotype Alliance is a chapter here in Australia that has been rolled out in several other markets across the globe and it is designed to be both a thought but really importantly an action platform to try and eradicate those stereotypes exactly as you say from across media and advertising. Uh, here in Australia we are We have, as you say, it's quite a bold ambition, but it's to adopt an intersectional approach to the progressive portrayal of all people and how we can address diverse representation across, it's not just gender, it's also across race, ethnicity, ability and age in the Australian media and advertising content because it's not just what you see on the screen that's important, it's it's who's behind the screen, who's bringing the messaging to the screens, where the screens are. And uh, so a group of Australian marketers and agencies have, have come together to, to, to lead this chapter, and that includes obviously IPG and WPP, um, but also Ipsos, we've got uh, Mars, Wrigley with Unilever, Coles, Westpac, uh, Google, Accenture, Optus, the list goes on, and it's been great, hasn't it, Rose, to see such a large and strong group of Australian brands and marketers and agencies come together and, and really the plan is to put action where our where our words are and, and make sure that we're delivering on this. It is and I think as Anathea said Callum we're working together with one voice. Often we are competitors to one another. We've got a lot of people in the group, all the brands and the businesses represented 
including the holding companies, but on this we are united and we speak with one voice. There are 217 nationalities in Australia. I'm one of them, right? I, I come from a different background. And the idea is that often we can get lazy about stereotyping. We fall into habitual behaviour and we need to address it. We need to do it well. And if we are one of the most highly multiculturalised countries in the world, shouldn't that be reflected in every piece of messaging that Mm -hmm. we produce so that people really get a sense of who really lives in this incredible country? So I guess in in terms of being able to make that progress there, one of the things that you are doing is... um, a research paper, a pretty extensive research paper um, with multiple sort of um, multiple sections to it that's coming out in 2023 at the very start of the year. Um, Rose, what what exactly will that be looking at? And I guess what can we sort of expect from that um, that paper? Well, I think as it says on the tin, we want to unstereotype the stereotypes across all communities, whether they be ethnicity, religion, gender, sexuality, ability, we just need to get to the crux of what those stereotypes are, why we fall into the trap and how to best address them. And to not take things as gospel or granted because oftentimes, and we talk about this in our meeting, people just don't know. And for the risk of offending, doing the wrong thing or being politically incorrect, they don't get the evidence and the research they need to address the problem head on. So the research is intended to do lots of dives across all of the different groups across Australia. I think we're starting with the Chinese-Australian community. We will look at all the communities, including First Nations, including the LGBTQI community, you name it, we're looking at it, but ultimately to address what are some of the very lazy stereotypes that we fall into, both as an industry and as a population. It was really interesting, wasn't it, Rose, when we started having these conversations because we realised that while there there certainly is a lot of research into different areas of um, diversity and inclusion in Australia, but there was no foundational research. There was nothing that we could look at and say from a total population perspective, this is how different Australians feel about what it's like to live in Australia, what discrimination looks like in Australia, how has that changed over the years, what assumptions are made about people when people don't know them, but also then how does that then go into relationships with brands and relationships with advertising? So I think that we're we're getting ourselves into a position where this foundational research is something that we can come back to and we can look at change over time. That's also a really critical thing because without that foundational piece of research, you, you really are only taking moments in time looks at things and we want to see how we collectively can change this over years to come. And obviously the, the the research is sort of at the latter stages now. Well, it's not published, I, I guess. Is there any early, ex- well, not expectations, but maybe results that you think might be on their way or anything you could share at this stage? I think that um, we can't really share anything about the Australian research at this stage, but one of the interesting things that we have done is we've worked really closely with our UK counterparts who ran a very similar foundational piece of research uh, just uh, probably about a year and a half, two years ago now, and that was absolutely fascinating. And we've, we've used many of the questions and uh, areas of exploration that they used in their research, again, deliberately because we also want to be able to see where does Australia sit 
in comparison to some of the other markets that uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that the um, UN women are active in. And some of the things that came out of the UK research, and Rose and I are really looking for, well, we're very interested and curious to see whether this will be replicated, is that discrimination in the UK is on the rise in terms of the way people feel about the discrimination. They, they see that over the last three years this has increased and what's also happening is that invisibility has become a really big issue people just don't feel represented in the messaging and the media and the content that they're seeing but i think and i hope that this is reflected in the australian research as well there is an overwhelming case for for brands being authentic and positive in their representation of all people because over 70% of people said that they would deliberately buy products and services from brands that showed up in that way. And I'm hoping that we'll see a very similar, I'm sure we will see a very similar uh, story in Australia, which is a great recommendation for why brands should be leaning in to removing those stereotypes. I think that's interesting. So, so true. I'm just reflecting on being in London when Liz Truss resigned and all of the conversation about Rishi Sunak and his race and his background and his religion. It's 2022. I was quite surprised that this was even a factor. This is an educated man who's done well for himself, who has risen up through the ranks, who has created a life, whose parents came into England who had a pharmacy, and I was fascinated to simply observe the number of English people who had a position on his race and on his religion. And it is interesting to see what the stereotype is about who should lead the United Kingdom or who should lead Australia or who should lead a business or where they come from and what their background is and what the stereotypes are. Now, that's just a live example in the, in the last few weeks about the leader of a nation, one would think that in 2022 um, this isn't the most substantive part of a prime minister, of his accomplishments, but that was the number one thing I heard in the streets of London and I thought that was fascinating and I wonder what that would mean for this country. So we will look at the questionnaire, we will replicate where we can in Australia, but we want to get to the nub of how we feel about all of the big issues when it comes to stereotypes. Yeah, and, you know, I guess in particular in this industry, which has such a big role to play on messaging and representation that we see on all forms of media, um, a big part of that, as, as you both kind of say, comes through representation in the voices that are also producing that. Um, it'd be interesting to, I guess, first of all, from, from Rose, hear about what some of the initiatives that your company has been doing in this, because, you know, you're both pretty high up at some of the biggest uh, companies in the in this market so you both have a very important role to play we're doing two things several things but two that I'm really very proud of and one is making sure that our creative community understands the communities that they are representing fact not fiction fact about the numbers and and as a child of immigrant parents I'm very passionate about this because I grew up in a part of Sydney where rarely people make it into this industry Um, I only speak English at work, for example. So certainly with our creative communities, we are reminding them to not make assumptions when they are reflecting or casting those that are not Anglo-Celtic in advertising or from any other community, gender, you name it. So that's one thing and it's active and it's participatory, but it's tangible proof and evidence about the cues that they should be looking to reflect. The second thing that we're doing is is a project we've called Breakthrough and it's a 
cadetship and internship, in fact, for young people coming into our industry who don't come from the usual places you would think. So from the southwestern suburbs of Sydney, from the western suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne, um, kids that actually wouldn't think of this as a career because they are migrant kids from different religions, different faiths, different ethnicities, different everything, frankly. So initiatives that will change the face of the people that work in our industry because it's my belief that to unstereotype, you need people who aren't the stereotype of the industry. Yeah. So those initiatives are two very big ones. We've got a lot to do, but but I'll let Anathea dive in as well because I know that UM is doing a lot as well, but they're the two that I think I'm very proud of at the moment. Yeah. It's really interesting, Rose, because it's what you say there's absolutely fascinating. And I, I come from the other side where I have always seen myself represented in all content um, because I'm the daughter of Aussies, I'm, you know, I'm cisgender, I'm, um, I'm in a heterosexual relationship. All, all of the things that I've, that, 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 are, that I am, I have seen represented. And I have to say, it, this has been my career and particularly the last sort of five, ten years of it, so long there's, there's many more years than those, um, have been about learning exactly what you're talking about there, how to not make assumptions. And, and I think that that's, that is, we need to broaden out our industry. We need to bring more people into the industry who 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 aren't uh, who who bring with them different perspectives, different views, and it's it's really only through that that we're going to that people like me are going to continue to learn. So I'm I was all, I remember we, we've had several conversations throughout this, and and you've spoken a lot about your experiences growing up, and they're quite different to mine, and and. I, I think that we all need to open up our eyes, our thinking, our ways of approaching uh, the work that we do and, and really bring in some different perspectives. And I think that's in the, with the Unstereotype Alliance as a group, we've got four pillars and Rose and I sit on the research and, and measurement pillar, which is why we are doing this, this foundational piece of research and, and um we're partnering with Ipsos on that, who are also part of the Unstereotype Alliance. But the other pillars are also incredibly important in then how that comes to life because, the, for example, there's an education pillar and that's all about what are the internal business practices that, that companies can be looking at to make sure that they are able to support unstereotyping, whether that's in front of the camera but also critically behind it. And then we, we have an industry change uh, pillar and that's, that's designed to exactly as Rose says, how can we engage with different communities, bring different people into it, but also provoke thinking and conversation amongst people who have been in the industry for a long period of time. And then the final pillar is, is a societal change one and that, that's really important because these conversations shouldn't just happen in our industry and community. We, we need to be having this conversation really broadly. So I think we've, we've got a big job to do, but for all the reasons that, that Rose spoke of, then it's a super exciting yeah. one for us. And Rose, you've been in your job for uh, around 10 months now, 10 or 11 months. Um, after nine, being nine big months, Callum. 
Nine months. Nine months. My mistake. Um, <laughs> I would really, I'd really be keen, I guess, to hear a little bit more about what you discussed before um, coming from an English second language household, and now you're, you know, heading up the Australian faction of the biggest advertising company in the world. Could you share maybe some of your experiences from earlier, earlier on in your oh. career, and I guess looking at it now running that company how you think it might have changed or it is different or maybe easier in some ways for uh, people coming from similar situations yeah no it's a it's a big question Callum so you know I'm a very very migrant child and I I really reflect much of Australia so here are the facts one in three Australians wasn't born in Australia almost 50 percent of Aussies speak a language other than English in their household um, it's an extraordinary statistic because we are now the most highly multiculturalized country in the world. And I'm, I'm one of those kids who grew up in a household where there was a, you know, a pig on the spit in the backyard and the neighborhood would come around and participate in the eating and in the celebration of our community. When I started, it was really interesting. I had several um, people who said to me that my English was very good. Now, I'm born in Australia. Of course, my English is very good. And also questions like, gosh, where is St Mary's, which is in the very, very heart of the western suburbs, um, you know, how many hours does it take for you to, to get to North Sydney? These really, I think, probably innocent questions but just undereducated points of view about my upbringing, where I come from, what I do, how I participate. And probably the most um, shocking to me was congratulating me for escaping, and I'm quoting here, the ghetto right? Literally. This is what somebody said to me in my early career. And now I grew up in a very nice household. My father had a construction business. He was very successful. My mum and dad deliberately kept us where they kept us to remind us of all the ways that life could go, which I really loved. You know, I went to school with kids that either ended up in jail or in other places you wouldn't really want to end up. And um, it was a very interesting experience. But the assumption was that I came from you know, um, a broken household, abject poverty, the western suburbs, a migrant child, and it's not wonderful and how proud my parents would be of me for actually having employment. And these are the things that I was told when I started my career. And I started my career in dispatch. I was in the mailroom at Amirati Pearson and Tass. That was my very first job. Now, I can't believe that anybody would say that to anybody in 2022, mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of scary that this was the perception of the other. And yep. You know, I was a kid who had a really lovely upbringing. I had these incredible parents and lots of opportunity. My parents really taught their children to raise themselves up by their bootstraps. My mum and dad escaped communist Yugoslavia. I didn't feel in any way disempowered. I just felt like a really strong kid with great parenting. And yet if I had been any weaker, those cues would have really disrupted and upset me as an individual. So in my job today, I remind my colleagues of where all of our kids come from. And we're pretty reflective. We've got... 40% of our people speak a language other than English across WPP. We, we over-index because I'm looking for people to come into our industry, into our operating companies that have a different perspective, come from a different cultural background, um, have diversity in every way, shape and form, um, neurodiverse, you name it, because diversity builds really smart businesses who ask the right questions. And so for me, I'm just aware of how I want them to feel included because if you're thinking in another language or thinking in another community, you are a much more effective unit of labour, hands down. And I want the diversity, I want the conversation, I want our people to bring their, their experiences from their own homes into 
our businesses because our clients will benefit because our clients' customers are exactly what I've just talked about, the 217 nationalities. So that's just a, a snapshot of what's changed in the in the 20 or so years that I've worked. And that's a big change, which is good. We just have more change to do. That's brilliant. Thank, thanks for sharing that, Rose. Rose, you won't be at all surprised to hear that I didn't get asked any of those questions in my early days. So, yeah, I think that that's a, a really clear reflection. It's interesting you talk about languages that people speak at home and the languages that we've we've been having conversations internally around the, the language that you think in or that you dream in and, and what that what that, as you said, does to your um does to the way you think, the way you work, the way you communicate. And I was chatting to someone from our team who shared that 8% of households in Sydney speak a Chinese language at home. So it's 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 really, these are not small numbers. These are really, really significant numbers. And I think that that brings just a really interesting opportunity for, for, for us and the brands that we represent to be communicating in a, in a much more authentic and, and, and positive fashion. And, and removing that invisibility, it's, I remember this was a couple of years ago now, but when Melissa Leong took over as, um, as a judge on one of my very favourite shows, MasterChef, um, and, and the, the, the outpouring was really positive because people were saying, I see myself reflected yeah. on the screen. I see the foods that I'm interested, that I've grown up eating being of interest to other people and to be exciting and to be, and to be showcased. And I've thought a lot about that because, again, that's not something that I have never seen. Like, I, as I say, I've always seen myself reflected on the, on the screen. And to hear just how powerful it is for people to see themselves uh, after not seeing themselves, after that period of invisibility, I think it's incredible. And I think brands that lean into this will really, really benefit, not just because they're doing the right thing, but because they're doing something that is inclusive. And when you include people, people want to interact with you, buy your products, buy your services, and and, um, and that's good for business. And I think just the thing to add there too, and listening to Anathea say this, and Callum, I think this is a huge point for a lot of our clients. Um, you can hurt someone very easily and very quickly by being mindless and thoughtless. And I know that a lot of people aren't doing this deliberately, right? They're not making a stereotypical assumption deliberately, but there's a laziness to not thinking beyond the curtain, what mm -hmm. will my words do? What will my images reflected do? How will this make people feel about the company and the brand? And all it takes is some nuanced and sophisticated questions and conversations to, to not make these mistakes, which are actually easy not to make if you think about it from the person's point of view that you are trying to advertise to or market to and walking in their shoes to see what it must feel like for them. And I think it, the speed with which business is changing and moving, I think for a lot of people, they're just not thinking and that mm -hmm. isn't good enough. We have to do better. And I think as an industry, we want to lead the charge and hopefully this research will tell us how to do better. Yeah, I hope so. And just to bring it back to a point that you made there, Anathea, um, first of all, I think it's quite interesting. All the kind of chefs that I think about on TV and kind of food personalities, they're all multicultural now. And it all, all, I think the popularity all stems from having all those different cultures represented on our screen. You think about um, the SBS 
lineup. I think they've just got like three or four new shows. But um, you, you you mentioned representation as well, Anathea, and I know you've kind of you've kind of said that your experience was vastly different to Rose's growing up, and you know you always did see yourself on screen. But I guess in particular within our industry, in particular, ten years ago. Um, I think the only media agency CEO was Rose, your successor as chief strategy officer yeah. at WPP. Um, Katie Riggs-Smith. Katie, Katie Riggs-Smith, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, now, you know, it's, 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 it's not really even a thought, especially in media agencies. I think on the MFA board, it is um, majority women CEOs. What do you think that, I guess does for the industry and some of those people for example in your team young women who can maybe now see that you know that's much more achievable than it maybe was 10 years ago yeah i get very excited about this and i'll dive in here because we've got obviously amy buchanan we've got maria grivis we've got katie rig smith we've got um, alicia musket at akqa we've got Sally kassane ceo of our biggest one of our biggest businesses ogilvy we're 50 50 at the top, which I'm loving. Um, I'm just excited because we are 50% of the population, so it stands to reason we're also 50% of the talent. And for me, onward and upward, um, best person for the job, yes, happens to be that 50% of them should be women because we are representative and hopefully pretty bright as well and talented. So for the younger women we know at WPP across all of our operating businesses, they're so excited to see these women with kids. Katie's got three, Amy's got two, Alicia just had her third, Sal's got a couple. So these are women who are raising families and their mums and their career women and their CEOs and they're making it work and, and we're doing everything we can to support. But I love that I've got now women in their mid-20s to late-20s out loud talking to me about their plans for their whole life, their personal life and their professional life. And they're talking openly about the two of them together. And I don't know, I get very passionate over to you, Anathea, but it's a real step change for us in terms of how it's looking. Yeah, we, we've also got really strong female representation at, at the C-suite level and, uh, and, and throughout the business. I think where we've all got still places to go is is intersectionality. I mean, I think that we've we've definitely done a great job. And I, as you say, Callum, it's it's not even really a question about it is there's no big announcement or no big surprise when a woman is announced as CEO of a of a media agency or a, or an advertising agency. Uh, I think that as we become more open, and also as we as we bring in people that might not necessarily have grown up in, in my instance, in a media agency or in an advertising agency. I don't come from a media agency background, so I don't necessarily think you you have to have um, that that type of experience. So as we do bring more folks in to do the right jobs and using the right skill set, I'm hoping that we'll see more intersectionality coming out and I think that we'll we'll have more interesting conversations as a result of that. And, and I'm super excited by some of the young people uh, in in my business and across the industry that I see, who are saying, uh, this is who I am, this is all the composite parts of me, and together they're all important because they make me up to be the person I am, and I, I want to bring all of those parts to work. And, and I want to I want to flourish um, and and I need pathways to do that and uh, one of the things that we've done at UM is is we're we're a certified family friendly organization and um, and that's something that I'm really proud of because 
every single person is part of a family, no matter what that family looks like. Families have children, families don't have children, families have parents, families have pets, uh, and, and all families need to be supported and need to be represented in, in our workplace. So making sure that we're living up to the expectations of our people, that we support them in their family, whatever that looks like, is is really important to me. I think Rose and I could probably talk about this topic all day, couldn't we, We could, Rose? we could. And I, and I want to mention men because some of the greatest feminists at WPP are the men. They're fantastic, right? They are fathers and partners and husbands and brothers and uncles. And seeing um, parental leave being taken up by the men at WPP has been amazing. You know, they get it. And they too want to be liberated from the breadwinner title and they want to have an active role in raising that family. As Anathea said, we're all part of a family. But what I've loved is how many men at WPP are cheering and rooting on the sidelines for these great women because we're in it together, men and women. We're raising these kids together, men and women. We all want to do well. And when we're supporting each other, that's when you get the best of everything. And I don't want to exclude how many men we have who are just so excited about the fact that they get a chance to go and raise their kids or raise their babies and spend some time bonding because, frankly, a lot of them have thought that they've missed out in the past. And that's one of the stereotypes, isn't it? Yeah. That yeah. we see if we bring that all the way back around. It all comes um, back to the. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They're the stereotypes that we sometimes see in advertising. Uh, and, and and that's just not a reflection of the world that we live in. And I think that this is the opportunity for us to do much more to reflect back the world that, that we do live in rather than rather than trying to be a a microcosm that might have been um, that people might have been thinking about 10, 15, 20 plus years ago. Uh, as as Rosa said a couple of times, 2022, let's reflect who we are now yeah. and, and, and this research is going to be a good place for us to start. Well, looking forward to seeing and hearing about that research when it comes in early 2023. Um, but it's been great in the meantime, also hearing you know from, from, from you both and about your experience as well. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Callum. Thanks, Callum. Well, that is it for this episode of the Mumbrella Cast. Please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on and leave us a review again, as I say every week, if you do enjoy the show. We'll be back next week with just the one episode next week. Uh, but for now, uh, thank you, Kalila, for joining me. Thank you, Cal. And thanks again to Rose and Anathea too. See you next week. 